The question is often asked, does God have anything to say specifically about love, sex, intimacy, especially in the context of relationships? You see, we wonder how God can create us as men and women with feelings of love, a desire to be loved, and then we figure not say anything about it. Why in the world would we institute something as beautiful as marriage and then give to us the passions we know as sexual intimacy and then we believe God doesn't say anything about it or gives no reference or no guide on how we are then to live? So we run to the bookstores. We look at the secular books and the magazines off the rack for advice on love and sex and marriage. And because of those worldviews, our view about love has been warped. Again, because we don't believe the Bible has anything to say. However, we don't need to look any further than in our own Bibles at the often neglected book, The Song of Solomon. Because the same God who made us with feelings and passions... The same God who calls us to a holy life and holy living. The same God who challenges us to live lives of self-control with the help of the Holy Spirit has dedicated an entire book of the Bible to these issues. And that is the book of the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon is God's guidebook for us in the area of love and romance. And this book is for all of us, whether we are single, whether we're not even thinking about dating anyone, whether we've been married one year or married 50 years. We can learn from the principles that are spoken of in this book because it is the inspired Word of God. For those of you who are single, by studying this book, you can know how to prepare yourself for marriage you can see how you can therefore set some guidelines for what to look for in a future spouse. To see if the one you are dating uh, this moment exhibits the qualities that God has ordained in a God-honoring marriage. Or you can look at yourself to see if you are one to whom God says you are now ready to be married. For those who are already married... We can learn from the principles of how we can continue the love and the romance for one another as God has intended. But together we will learn what defines this thing called love. And so we begin our series this morning by looking at the area of attractions. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Song of Solomon, chapter 1, as we study verses 1 to 11. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. For those of you who are new to the Bible, the Song of Solomon is the last book in the wisdom literatures. It follows Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then we get to the Song of Solomon. If you've gotten to the major prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah, then you have gone too far. Once you turn to it, put your bookmarks there, as we'll be in this book for the next few weeks. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 1 begins. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. This first verse identifies the, that the author of this book is indeed Solomon. Solomon is the son of David, the third king of the united Israel. He's often referred to as the wisest man that has ever lived. Solomon, a bit like his father, was a poet-writer having written much of the book of Proverbs, as well as the book of Ecclesiastes. He has written many songs and poems, but this is his premier song, the, the Song of Songs. It has the idea, the implication, that this was the best of all of his songs written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What is this book all about? This book is about the relationship between Solomon and a woman. And what it does that is that it traces the process of their relationship. 
It traces how they were first initially attracted to each other, and then how they courted each other, how they dated, and then their wonderful grand wedding. And then it even talks about the wedding night. That's going to be fun to preach on. And then it talks about life after marriage. It talks about their first big fight. How was that conflict resolved? And we're going to be journeying with this couple through each stage of their relationship to see how to define this thing called love. And so we begin in chapter 1, verse 2, as it tells us about the two types of attraction we have for one another. Look at me at verse 2. This is the woman speaking. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Isn't that a wonderful verse that all women should memorize? That should be the attitude of all married women when they see their husband. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. The Song of Solomon begins with this woman who is strongly and immediately attracted to Solomon. She finds him utterly intoxicating, even much better than wine. She wants to be with him. She is attracted to his good looks. There is an instant physical attraction. And I don't think I need to explain much about physical attraction. You know that feeling. That feeling of where... When you see that one person, when you see that person, even if it's only two minutes in a day, it has made your day. And when you don't see that person, somehow your day is not complete. Or when he or she flashes that smile at the office and you get all giddy like you're a five-year-old. Or they come by and tell you good morning or just a simple hi. And you resolved in your mind, I am going to marry that person because he or she said hi. She must love me. And it just melts your heart. And you go head over heels over that person. You know what I'm talking about. That is that physical attraction. For the married couples... That is the attraction you are supposed to have for one another. Doesn't matter how many years you are in marriage. Do you have that same feeling of when you wake up and you say, I can't wait to open my eyes and see my husband or wife. The reality for many of us is that we open our eyes and we see them and we simply think to ourselves, it's you again. The passion has been lost. But that passion for the beautiful person you married, regardless of age, should be there. We've been told often in churches that physical attraction is somehow unholy. It's somehow unnatural. It's unspiritual. You should not be attracted to someone because of their beauty. If I were to take a survey of the married couples here and ask them, what was the initial attraction to their spouse. I bet if they were honest with me and honest with themselves, they would say, you know, pastor, she was hot. He was really good looking. I was attracted to them physically. I don't think any of you would tell me, you know, pastor, when I first met her, I thought she was really ugly. But you know, her insides was so beautiful. That's why I turned around. No, it should be stated that physical attraction is both permissible and desirable. It is instituted by God. This is how God has made us. There is nothing wrong with being attracted physically to another person. If men were not attracted to women and women were not attracted to men, then the human race would have ceased to continue after Adam and Eve. Look at verse 3. Because of the fragrance of your good ointments. Because of the fragrance of your good perfume. Solomon knew how to attract the young ladies. 
this woman finds Solomon well-groomed and he smells good. Whoever said the Bible wasn't practical? Young man, that's a, a way for you to attract the women. You need to bathe and smell good. I remember many years ago, and with his permission, I tell the story, uh, who came to me and uh, asked me, Pastor, I've got a problem. I said, what is it? How come I can't find anyone to like me? None of the girls like me at church. He told me I, I attend church every week. I, I go to Bible studies. I go to fellowship. I'm doing all the, quote-unquote, right things. You know me to be someone who is very frank. And I said to this young man, I said, young man, can I, can I be honest with you? Sure, pastor. I said, I'm glad you do these things, but I think you need to look in the mirror. You look like you just got out of bed. And you look like you just got out of bed every time I see you. I suggest that you go get a comb and you know, some gel and some hairspray and you know, find a hairstyle. If you need one, you can copy mine. Mine's a good one. Uh, maybe uh, you, you want to dress a little bit better. Glad you took my advice. This man, I can say, is a very happily married man with children at our church. You have to look good. People don't want to see you looking like you got out of bed. That is for after marriage. But that's also a great tip for you who are married. Don't let yourself go. Don't think that you are not to make yourself up just because you are married. It's good to dress up for one another, especially for the women, because that's how God has wired men. Men are often stimulated by their eyes. That's just how God has made us. And so that's something we can work on. But while physical attraction is important, there is a secondary attraction that is of greater importance. And you can guess it, that is the spiritual attraction we should have. Attracted to the beauty of one's inner qualities. Look at the second part of verse 3. The woman continues, Your name is perfume, it's ointment poured forth. This woman links the good-smelling perfume of Solomon with the attraction of his name. This is a direct reference to Solomon's character, his, his virtue, his integrity that, that flows out of his walk with God. This woman was attracted to Solomon's inner beauty as much as she was attracted to his physical beauty. The man that stood before her was a man of character, a man of good reputation. His name was holy. In fact, it wasn't just her assessment of Solomon. Solomon's good character was known to all. Look at the end of verse 3. Therefore, the virgins love you. The women of Jerusalem, the women of Jerusalem are attracted to Solomon like this woman was because of his good character. He had a good reputation. Men, God has not wired women to only look for your good looks. He's wired women to also look for your godly character. A man of integrity. Do you ever wonder how a not-so-good-looking man often ends up with a beautiful woman? It's not about the looks. It's about the beauty of the inner soul. And Cindy and I are an example of this. A, a beautiful woman marrying a not-so-good-looking man. But you see, the man is tasked to become the spiritual head of the household. He does not become the spiritual head overnight after marriage. It's something that he is to cultivate prior to marriage. Men, whether you're single or married, you need to make sure that your name is held to the highest of standards. That the inner life, the inner integrity of your character shines forth. Women... Don't simply like a guy because he's nice to you or he looks good. Make sure and search for one whose name is good. A personal of exceptional character. The attraction of one's spiritual character is much more important than the physical. What are we to look for specifically? Can I suggest for you two things? 
that you should be looking for to be spiritually attracted to. The first thing you should be looking for is that you should look for one who has placed their trust alone in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. You should look for a believer. 2 Corinthians 6.14 tells us that we are not to be yoked with unbelievers for what do we have with them in common. You say, Pastor, I know that requirement, and I know you do. But we often take it as a suggestion, not as a command from God. You see, if you really walk with God, if you really say, God, I love you with all of my heart, then this should be one of the top things you look for in a spouse as you are spiritually attracted to them. Do they know Christ as their personal Savior? You see, the vast majority of the time when a Christian and a non-believer marry, the Christian is often always led away from God and rarely is the non-Christian led towards God. We all want to marry our soulmates in marriage. We want someone whose heart beats the same as ours. And the only way for two hearts to beat the same is if they follow the same Savior. If they follow the same Lord. And the beauty of marriage is that you can connect at a deep emotional and spiritual level and that can only happen if both of you know Jesus Christ. Now I know in our congregation there are those who have married one who is not a believer. What then should you do? You're not to leave them. I suggest that you commit to praying for your spouse daily. Really pray for them if it's something that's important to you. Begin to live your life so that the other spouse will see the Savior in your life. Share your faith with them. Tell them daily how your walk with Jesus is important to you. Yes, it's going to be more difficult, but you've already made the decision to enter into a relationship with that person who doesn't acknowledge Jesus. But how wonderful it is that the Lord can soften the hardest of hearts. He alone changes hearts. Parents, God has given you children, and it is a great responsibility. You who say you walk with Jesus, you need to teach them this command from God at a very young age as my parents did for me. Drill it into their heads. Make it a demand of your children if you have that responsibility. Let them know what is important. I see too many parents today know this command from God, but simply because the girl is nice or the guy is nice and you're rushing that your child gets married will simply justify any reason not to obey God's direct command. Parents, don't make excuses for your children. Teach them what the Word of God says. Now, while being a Christian is important, when you marry someone, number two, what to look for, make sure it is someone with an active faith. Make sure they truly love Jesus with all of their hearts, not someone who has a nominal relationship with the Lord or occasionally goes to church or is dragged to church because you make them, I guarantee you that the day you get married, they will stop showing up at church. Because their walk with Christ is nominal. They're only going through the motions to win your heart. Make sure they love God with all of their heart. Make sure they're genuinely walking with the Lord. Ladies, look for a man who can at least initiate prayer. One of the simplest of things. I know it's awkward, especially if you're on a date, but let him initiate, challenge him to initiate prayer before you eat at the very least. Because then when you do get married, he will take the initiative to lead you spiritually. Together as a couple, whether you are dating or whether you are married, do you pray together on your dates? I know that sounds so unromantic. But you ask together that God would guard your hearts to bless your relationships, to keep you holy. That will add a layer of protection from temptation. Even in marriage, 
You're together all the time. You do everything together. Do you do things spiritually together? Again, it can be awkward if you've never done it for the first time. But let me challenge you to do so. In our world today, romance is only about you and me. It's not about the spiritual. And yet, the one who instituted romance in our life calls us to put him at the center of our relationship Be the culture changer that God has called you to be. And if that person is not willing to pray for you, if that person makes excuses why they can't do the spiritual things together with you, then become unattracted to them. Because it means that their spiritual walk is not genuine. And when you're making one of the most important decisions of your life, You need someone whose heart beats the same as your passion for Jesus. For those of you who are already married, newly married, make sure that the beginning of your relationship is grounded on the cultivation of your walk with God. It is foundationed upon the Word of God. That you're reading the Scriptures together. You're coming in fellowship. You're praying together. Simple things, we just simply don't do it. Guard your hearts, singles. Because if that person to whom you are attracted to doesn't do those things, then become unattracted to them. Now sometimes attraction, or all the time, attraction drives us nuts. It drives us crazy. Attractions can be so strong that we can no longer make common sense Decisions. You've heard it said that when once two people are emotionally attached, you can't logically reason with them. And that's the truth, right? You can't reason with them. So it's important that before you fall head over heels over someone, that you put up some guardrails. You know what a guardrail is? A guardrail on the side of a road prevents the car from going over the cliff or from falling off the side of the road. You need to put up some guardrails. To make sure that you don't make the wrong decisions. That's what God has given us. These principles by which to put up the guardrails to make sure that our attractions, our raging hormones are put into check. Whether that's for the singles or even for the marrieds in a relationship with one another. That the guardrails of one's relationship is put up so that it protects your marriage. And we'll talk more about boundaries next week. It's important that singles and marrieds have set boundaries in their relationship. The first guardrail I give to you is reputation. Someone with a good outside reputation. That is a good guardrail. Make sure that the person you are married or going to marry has a good reputation in the community and outside. Solomon had a good reputation. He wasn't just good-looking. He was someone all the young women wanted to date. What kind of reputation does the person you are attracted to have with other believers? What's your reputation? Does the one you are attracted to have a reputation for being unfaithful? Because if they're unfaithful to someone else, they will be unfaithful to you. Does that person have a reputation for being a womanizer? Be careful. Does that person have a reputation for being easy, flirtatious? Be careful. What's that reputation? Look at verse 4. Draw me away, the woman says. We will run after you. The king has brought me into his chambers. It it seems at this moment this this woman is just kind of falling, uh, throwing herself as Solomon. But you have to understand a bit of Hebrew poetry here. The Hebrew is best rendered in the verbal tense. May the king bring me into his chambers. He was, she was expressing her desire to be with him. It's almost to the sense that she's going to ask her girlfriends, what do you guys think? Is this relationship a good relationship? What do you girls think? And that's how women operate, right? You can't make your own decisions. Well, some of you can. 
But the rest must be affirmed by a community of other women. Girls, what do you think about this guy I'm attracted to? What do you guys think? Well, guess what? Second part of verse 4, the girls respond. We will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. In the 21st century vernacular, the girls are saying to this woman, you go, girl. Go for it. We approve. We approve of this guy. All right, go for it. They've given their seal of approval for their relationship. That's what it says in verse 4. Rightly do they love you. It's, it's, it's good. The friends of the women, the women of Jerusalem, all agree that this was a good match. They approve their love for the right reasons. And that's a wonderful guardrail. Seek the advice of those who are godly. Seek the advice of others in your relationship. Ask your friends, what do you think about this guy? Because the one that's attracted to another is often clouded in their judgment. Ask those who are objective. Ask your friends. Ask your parents. I know you would never do that. Why would I ask my parents about my relationship with someone else? It's so embarrassing. Ask your parents. They, they know you well. I know it's awkward, but they love you. They want the best for you. I've never heard a parent tell me, you know, pastor, I hate my kid. I hope he marries the wrong person so that they can suffer. What parent would say that? You know what parents would do? I, I want the best for my child. I know him well. I know her well. And I know what type of person will compliment the other well. Ask them. Oh, but, but pastor, my parents are so old-fashioned. Well, they got married and they had you. Ask them. Ask others. Get their honest opinion. Objective opinion. It's a good guardrail. Tommy Nelson proposes these questions to be asked. Would I feel honored to be asked out on a date by this person? Is he, is he a man or woman of, of good reputation, a man or woman of character, that it would be an honor to be asked out by him? Second question. Would I feel privileged to be seen in church with the person to whom I am attracted? I see you at church. I just don't say anything. I can tell when you're in a relationship when you suddenly sit together every week. It's obvious. But I'm applauding most of the time. Great relationship. But if you bring that person to church and you guys sit together... Will it cause a buzz? Will it, will it cause a lot of gossip? Third question. Would I love to bring this person home to meet mom or dad, grandpa or grandma, aunt or uncle? Am I proud enough of this person that I can bring them to my mom and dad and my relatives and they would love him? Or would I be afraid? Can you be proud of the person you are dating? Listen carefully, especially young people. If you have to walk in the dark corners of this village, if you have to be in the darkened areas of a building to be in a relationship with someone, then something is wrong in that relationship. Because if there is something that you need to hide, instead of everyone applauding your relationship, then something must be wrong. Does your relationship honor God? Even for the marrieds out here, are you proud of your husband? Are you proud of your wife? Are you proud to introduce them to your friends? Are you someone to whom your spouse can be proud of? Areas for us to grow in. The second guardrail to ensure that our attractions are in the right place is to look for someone of good character. That's a good guardrail. 
Look for someone of good character. Look at verse 5 and verse 6. I am dark but lovely, the woman says, O daughters of Jerusalem. Like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Now you may think from reading verses 5 and 6 that this woman had a self-esteem problem. But we find out in verse 5 that she doesn't. She thinks herself as lovely. But she did have a problem with the impression she thought, she believed, that she had because of her skin color. Her skin color was very dark, like the tents of Kedar. The tents of Kedar was a special type of tent made with black goat's hair. So it was a very dark tent. The people of that day were very similar to our Asian culture where we value uh, the whiteness of one's skin, the fairness of one's skin, because it implies that somehow that the women uh, are indoor women. They, they don't do physical labor. They don't work hard in the fields. They, they're pampered ladies. They, they're sheltered into the home. That's the idea. And so uh, a light skin complexion gives off that reputation. But this woman, verse 5 and verse 6, is of a sunburnt complexion. She's darkened in her skin. Why, verse 6? Because she has been out working in her brother's field. She is a hard worker. She is obedient. Her family says, we need you to help, and therefore she helps. And it is in this that Solomon is attracted to. It's not about the skin color. Solomon is attracted to this woman because of her good character. She's a good person. Are you attracted to someone who has a good character? Because if you aren't, I caution you. Let's say, for example, that person to whom you're attracted to is rebellious, doesn't like authority, hates his parents, hates her parents, refuses to submit to authority or, or to government officials, rethink your attraction. Because a person who is rebellious will then not submit to the authority of God and God's ordained plan in marriage. They will not desire the God-given roles required within marriage, a wife to submit to the husband in many things and the husband to submit to the decision-making authority of Jesus Christ. What is the character of the one to whom you are attracted to? Look for someone of good character. Are they hardworking? Because if they aren't, guess what? You're the one that's going to be making breakfast. You're the one that's going to have to get up early. You look for someone who's diligent. Someone is a good steward of things. Be careful if they're not. Because after marriage, then they're going to spend all your money. They're going to be pretty lazy. That's for both men and women. You see, a definition of character, a good definition of character, is how you act when no one is looking. How do you act when no one is looking? And so that's why we tell the singles, those who are dating, Observe him or her when he or she is having a bad day. Observe them when they are under stress. How do they react? Do they snap at people? See how they are when they are stressed out. How do they treat others? How do they treat the waiters and the maids and the drivers? How do they manifest anger? Are they easily angered? Do they speak unkind words? They may be sweet to you and say wonderful things to you. But to everyone else, how they treat their parents and their siblings and their colleagues, they are unkind, they are bitter, they, they, they yell out obscenities, they are revengeful and vengeful. If these are the qualities that you observe, become unattracted to them quickly. Do not justify their actions. Ah, oh, you know what, we all have a bad day. 
when five out of seven days are bad days for that person, that's probably a bad person. But I see it so often. Men and women clouded by love, making excuses for the one they are attracted to. How they treat others is how they will treat you in marriage. Be careful. That's why it's important for you to know someone for a long time before you marry them. See the real them. They don't, there's, a, there's, a, there's a thought out there that somehow when I marry someone, he or she will change completely. No, it will only exemplify who they were in their dating life. Unless God gets a hold of their life and, and shakes them and, and changes the very way they live. Make sure the person you date, the person you desire to marry, is someone of good character. And cultivate that in yourself as well. Make sure you are one with a good character, whether married or not. The third guardrail to ensure that our attractions are kept in check. Look for someone with strong convictions. Look for someone with strong convictions. Look at verse 7 with me. The woman says, Tell me, O you whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon, for why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions. Solomon is a busy king. He's somewhere out there. He's, he's, he's moving around and this woman can't find him. He's pictured here as a shepherd moving around. Where is he? You would think at this point that this woman would begin to chase after Solomon. But she doesn't chase after him. In verse 7, she thinks... He should be looking for me. I shouldn't be looking for him. I would not be a veiled woman looking for a man. In the time of Solomon, a veiled woman, one who has her face covered, who would appear during the day looking for men, was a prostitute. And this woman stated that she would not practice the immorality of being a veiled prostitute. I'm not going to chase after him. I will not compromise my integrity, my reputation, or chastity to simply get a man. We see that this woman is a woman of conviction. What are the convictions you have as you enter into the dating world? What are the convictions you have that guard your marriage as a married couple. Sadly, I've seen too many young men and young women throw away their godly convictions. They have grown up in the church. They know the teachings of Jesus. But because they fall so madly in love and their hormones are raging and their attraction is making them nuts, they simply reject the conviction that they have made all for a man or a woman who will then reject them at the end. Breaks my heart, but I see it all too often. Take a stand not to ever compromise your conviction when you begin to date. These are the boundaries I will not cross. These are the places you cannot touch me. Make sure those boundaries are there to protect your purity. Now, that sounds old-fashioned, but old-fashioned or not, that is what protects us. Look for someone with strong convictions, both in yourself and in the one you are attracted to. What if we found someone that we are attracted to and fits within these guardrails? What then do we do? What is the response of a person when they find someone of a good reputation with a godly character and a strong conviction. Let's take a look, verse 8 to 11. Beginning in verse 8. If you do not know, O fairest among women, follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside 
the shepherd's tent. Now, who says this? Uh, the difficulty in interpreting the Song of Solomon is because sometimes we are not sure who is the speaker. The little notations in your Bible of the beloved and the lover and the friends of the lover are, are put there by the interpreters. But in the poetry of Song of Solomon, it's, it's one song. And so who says verse 8? Well, it could either be Solomon. And if Solomon was saying this back to the woman... It's a playful response. Oh, you know where to find me. The idea that I'm, I'm, I'm at a place where I'm supposed to be. You know where to find me. I'm there. I'm consistent. I'm faithful. It could be the friends of the women. And if it was them, then the implication of verse 8 is that don't worry. We can ask someone where he is. But regardless of who speaks verse 8, what is important is what Solomon says in verse 9 and 10. I've compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with chains of gold. Solomon, in response to one who is of good character and strong conviction, one who has a good, good reputation, his response to her is, I love you. I am attracted to you as well. You are so beautiful. You know what? In fact, you are so beautiful, you look just like my horse. That's what it says in verse 9. Not very romantic to compare the one you like with your horse. I don't suggest that in your relationship. If you tell your wife or the one you are attracted to, you look just like a horse, she may slap you or walk out on you. So I better explain this verse. In the ancient Near East, uh, women, for whatever reason culturally, uh, was often compared to horses as an object of beauty. But here the implication is as a horse amongst Pharaoh's chariots. You see, Pharaoh, the great rulers of Egypt, had an amazing army, and one of the most feared was the chariots, the cavalry. And you could always tell which chariot held Pharaoh, because the horse that led Pharaoh's chariots was the one that was white. Everyone's horse could not be white. And so Pharaoh's chariots stood out amongst the crowd. And here's the implication of what Solomon is saying. You stand out. You are the one amongst million. You are the most special amongst all the other women. You are extremely valuable. You see, you value people who have a good conviction, a strong conviction, a good character, and a great reputation. This woman is highly valued, Solomon sees in her. You are one of a kind. When you find a person like that, don't take them for granted. Treat them with kindness. When you marry that person, as your wife, as your husband, treat them with respect. Do not treat your wife as a maid or a waitress. Your husband as a simple carpenter or janitor. Kindness is a mark of respect. Treat them with respect. One who is valued, one of a kind. Solomon declares her beauty, perhaps in the courts. I have compared you, my love. You are one of a kind. Your, your cheeks are lovely, man. You are so beautiful. Your neck with chains of gold. Because Solomon declares her beauty, look what the friends say in verse 11. We will make you ornaments of gold with studs of silver. This is the approval. As the woman, when she told them that she liked him, they all clapped their hands and said, All right, good relationship. When he declares his love for her, his attraction to her, they all give their approval as well. They praise her beauty, and they say, Solomon, yes, we agree with you. She is beautiful. 
outside and in. Isn't it great that God has made us people of attraction? We are attracted to people both on the physical and spiritual level, but make sure you are attracted to them more spiritually than physically because with age we do no longer look like we once did. But the spiritual beauty continues to grow. Pursue a relationship when the attraction is centered on one's active faith in God. Even in marriage, love the person more, your husband, your wife, when they are actively pursuing a walk with God. Now you say, Pastor, well, when can I date? I'm ready to go. I think I found someone. I've been looking around at church this hour. I think I spotted someone. You are ready to begin, and we'll talk more about this in the upcoming weeks. You're ready to begin the process when you are ready to get married. You see, dating and courtship leads to marriage. And so, you know what? If you're not ready to get married, you're still young, don't date. Get to know a lot of people. It's it's your opportunity to make friends with a wide range of people. I know that's not in our 21st century culture today. Everyone needs to hook up. We all need to pair up. And poor soul, the one who doesn't get paired up with anyone. It's okay. You're the lucky one. You get to be the one that is friend to all. When are you ready to date? When you're ready to get married? I love the advice my parents gave me, very practical. When we asked them, when can we date? Parents told us, you can date when you are financially ready to support a wife. You can't feed yourself, you also can't feed your wife, and we're not going to feed her for you. It makes a lot of sense. And that's why I believe, although it is not a popular idea in our culture today, High school students should not be dating. And yes, I know you have your MUs, your mutual understanding, whatever levels of commitment. I've lost track. It was much easier when I was in high school. You either are or are not dating. Even college students, if you can't support yourself, you shouldn't be dating. If you're not ready for marriage, don't date. Courtship, dating, it's a prelude to marriage. I find it a bit hilarious, a bit funny when a young man still in school has to tell his girlfriend, oh, you know, I'm so sorry. I'd love to take you to nicer places, but I've got to borrow money from my parents. It's kind of ridiculous, isn't it? I'd I'd love to take you to an amazing dinner or movie or whatever else, but I need to get my parents' permission first. Makes no sense. Or you give a gift to someone, the one you like. Here's a gift from me and my parents. Because that's what it really is. More than the timing, you are ready to date when you have answered correctly the guardrail questions. Have you resolved that you will settle for nothing less than one who has a godly character? Even in yourself. When you can say, I know where I stand in my walk with God. I'm ready to date. Are you willing never to compromise any of your convictions, even choosing to remain single? These are my convictions as taught to me in the Word of God. These are the boundaries I will not cross. And if anyone calls or questions me to cross these boundaries, then that person is not the right person for me. Make sure that your convictions are in the right place. And then do you have the approval of your parents, your friends? Are they all applauding you? Do they have a great reputation? Or do you have to hide in the dark reaches of this world simply to be with the person you like? Answer those guardrail questions. It will guide you 
to tell you whether you are ready or not. But also remember, it's not always about the other person. Remember that you are becoming the person, or you should become the person that your ideal person is praying about. You should be working on yourself as well. Why would God give an amazing person to you when you are unworthy to receive such a person? Look at yourself. See, am I worth marrying? For those of you who are married, are you the man or woman in the marriage relationship that God has intended you to be? Do you have the romance of that physical and spiritual attraction that led you to each other at the very beginning? If not, begin today to become that better husband, that better wife. And we'll talk more specifically about your areas of improvement as we work through the Song of Solomon. Do I have a godly character? Do I have convictions even in marriage? You need them to guard your marriage. Do I have a great reputation? Am I proud to introduce my wife, my husband, to my circle of friends? If you can't answer those, then there are areas of your marriage relationship that you need to work on. But attraction is great. And praise God that he has given us the guardrails by which we keep those attractions not only in check, but Christ-honoring. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the practicality of your word. Thank you for giving us a guidebook in the Song of Solomon for how to deal with love and sex and intimacy and romance. Because the world today has it all in the wrong places. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would especially be with uh, our singles this morning who perhaps in the yearning of their heart have been waiting a long time. And perhaps they may waver a bit, questioning their own convictions and willing to lower their standards. But as the God who calls us to excellence, but a God who is gracious and who is sovereign and who knows what he's doing, Help them to keep their convictions. Guard their hearts, Lord. Give them the joy that comes from a great relationship with you. For those of us who are married, I pray that for many of us, we would rediscover the passion of our marriage relationship, that we would work at becoming better husbands and wives, that if there are those spouses who are not yet walking with you, who are nominal and have fallen back, pray for them this morning. I pray that you would work in their hearts to bring them to that realization where they need to humble themselves and come before you and deal with the matters of their relationship with their Savior and Lord. So in all these things, Lord, we just commit to you and we pray that your word would be a, a shining light into our path, a path in this dark world to show us the standards which you have set. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.